So, as Melinda comes forward to uh, give the scripture this morning, I've asked her to do two scriptures. And, and the first is the story of the tax collector, Zacchaeus. And it really is representative of Jesus' very personal mission to the world. And the, the second is a reminder from Paul, and I think it, it, you'll see the common thread between the two. He entered, into, excuse me, he entered into Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd he could not, because he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your home today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Holy wisdom, holy word. In technical writing, you're supposed to define an acronym the first time you use it, but there's certainly a lot of acronyms these days that defy that. If I were to say LOL or IRS, you'd pretty much get it right away. <laughs> and so if I say WWJD, you're going to flash to what would Jesus do? And after all, as Christians, what better standard for our lives than what Jesus Christ taught us? Well, to begin with, what did Jesus do? Well... He was born the Son of God. He gave his life to redeem not only the world, but all future generations. And to this day, hundreds of millions of people follow his teachings. Well, that's a relief. Can't, can't live up to that. That's an impossible standard. Nobody's capable of that. And a good thing, too, because I think we know in our heart of hearts that every day we make decisions differently than Jesus would be it the car we drive, the home we live in, the type of job we do. We don't have to be Jesus. So what about a little lower level of role model? Say John Wesley, Moandis Gandhi, Mother Teresa. No, still too strong. <laughs> If all of us suddenly felt the call to ministry, probably the first people we'd miss would be the trash collectors. Each of us is part of the laity, and the laity is the body of the church. Our role is to be family members, workers, worshipers. We only need to seek to be maybe a little better version of ourselves. And in that, maybe we do have a personal role model, a parent, a teacher, a friend, someone who lives a good life. 
Maybe it's somebody two pews over. Just remember, the person two pews over might be thinking about you. My grandmother, Zora Armstrong, was born in 1897. Her first memory was being on a runaway buckboard. There was a snake that spooked the horses, and they took off. Her older brother and sister on the seat dove off the sides, but she and her sister in back were too young to jump off. So her sister held her and told her that it would be okay. Up ahead, her father heard the cries of her older brother and sister, and he picked up a board, and as the horses came even, he whacked them across the chest, and they came to a stop, and the little girls were saved. Well, if ever there was a metaphor for my grandmother's life, that's it. She was the child that everyone told her mother she would never raise to adulthood. She had every childhood disease in the book and then some. She had German measles, scarlet fever, tetanus, polio. When she had polio, she was in a coma for some days, and her mother instinctively bathed her legs in warm water. When she woke up, her sister crept into the room and said, the doctor says you're never going to walk again. And my grandmother said, I can sew and threw off the covers and staggered across the room. <laughs> well, later on, they found that warm baths and massage were a way to ameliorate the possible paralytic effects of polio. At five, her family fled the potato blight in Colorado and went on her long journey that eventually took her to the Pacific coast where she lived out her life. Sixty years later, she wrote down that story, and in ten pages, it reads like a whole book. Her first real job was cooking on a sheep ranch, as I said before. Uh, she learned to swear and drink coffee royale, ha habits she later had to learn to break. But it started her on her lifelong trade of cooking. It was a natural for her because of the nurturing nature of the job. She cooked in a lot of institutions, hospitals, and somehow she made the bland food tasty. At age 40, she tripped and fell and burst an abscess in her abdomen. And in those days, that was sure peritonitis. But they gave her this experimental drug, sulfa, and she got better. At one point, a volunteer came into her room and was chatting with her and asked what she was in for, and she told her. And the volunteer got very quiet, and she said, well, they have told you that you're going to die, haven't they? She said she had no plans of doing so. <laughs> Graham raised three children through the Great Depression with an alcoholic husband who she eventually buried. She also ended up raising my cousin Donna from age 11, and half-raised my brother and myself when our parents got divorced. I remember tramping through the woods with her in the spring looking for the first trilliums, sitting at home on rainy Sundays making fresh french fries. When she was 63, she took a job for six weeks cooking at a convent where the nuns were working in a Catholic school. She ended up staying for 10 years. Sometimes they would asked the nuns, well, why don't you get a nice Catholic woman to cook for you? And they'd say, well, Mrs. Armstrong's so much better. <laughs> she often said that she probably would have stayed there until she died if they hadn't ended up closing down the convent and the school. At 75, she was hit by a speeding car, thrown 30 feet, shattered her elbow, broke her knee. 
I was blessed with having some time then to be able to help her when she came out of the hospital, but three weeks later, she was back on her feet and taking care of herself. At age 80, she would still help out when the church would serve at the Senior Citizen Center. (laughs) To the day she died, she kept by her bedside a copy of a book of crossword puzzles and the upper room. She had three children, and at the time of her death, 11 grandchildren, 10 great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. One day, my cousin Pete thanked her for all that she'd done for his family when they were growing up. She said she didn't know so much about that, and she thought his other grandmother had done more. He said, well, I don't know. All I know is that when there was trouble in the family, there was Grandma Armstrong in the kitchen baking cookies, and we knew it was okay to go out and play. See, Graham had this wonderful quality of presence. She was the rock-solid center of all our universes. When she looked at you, you knew that she saw you as you really are and loved you as you really are. She never dominated a room But you always knew she was there. So, presence. What is it really? Are you present or is your mind off multitasking someplace else? As parents, we know how hard it can be to be present for an infant 24-7. And you you know, even when you're not formally in charge, your mind is, is out there saying, okay, what's happening? And you also know how easy it is to be distracted and how even a moment of inattention can turn into a tragedy, as we've seen all too often so recently. So you do everything it is possible to extend your presence. When you're driving, the other drivers certainly hope that you're present. Out here, just outside our door on I-90, more than half the accidents with an attributable cause are due to driver inattention. We often think of driving as a competitive sport. (laughs) But really, it's one of the most collaborative things that there is. How else can you explain thousands of cars hurtling along 60 miles an hour, bumper to bumper, within a fraction of a mile an hour of each other, but only if everyone is present? Now, as good an example of presence as that might be, it doesn't capture the true essence Because to be truly present, not only must you regard somebody else, but they must know your regard. It can be something quite simple. It can be smiling at the clerk in the grocery store, meeting the gaze of somebody on the street, putting your hand on the shoulder of a loved one, cooking a meal for a sick friend, seeing the real person in everyone you meet, not just the role in in your life, Each of us is the living embodiment of God's love. How have we delivered that love today to the unloved, the unrecognized, the disenfranchised? It can be a little scary sometimes. In the city, people often will not meet the gaze of other people for fear of encountering the crazies or the panhandlers. But who needs recognition more than they? Even in those we love, it's hard to sustain 
the intimacy of extended eye contact. Jesus, of course, was all about presence. John tells us, Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. To the consternation of many around him, he was always associating with the marginalized people of his day. Not only was he healing the sick, the disabled, the dying, but also the lepers, the lowest of the low. There are many instances of him healing those with unclean spirits, and one can only imagine the afflictions of body and mind that might encompass. But surely those people were shunned by the normal people of their time. And then there were the sinners, the Samaritans, the tax collectors for crying out loud, the tax collectors who were aiding the Roman invaders and enriching themselves at the expense of the Jews. In the story of Zacchaeus, it's clear that this man was despised at a variety of levels. He was short of stature and not just a tax collector, but the chief tax collector. And those who thought themselves better were distressed that Jesus should spend time in the home of such a sinner. Yet Jesus saw in Zacchaeus the ability to repent. The lepers, the unclean, the sinners. Jesus truly saw these people when all around him overlooked them or tried to. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. There is surely no doubt that Jesus would confound us equally if he came back today. He'd be hanging out with the marginalized people of our society, the rehab centers, the slums, healing those with AIDS, the modern equivalent of leprosy. And he'd be seeking out the sinners, great and small, who are truly ready to repent, because that is the fertile ground. Jesus truly saw sinners for the people they could be, as he sees the best that could be in all of us. In the song, Suzanne, singer, songwriter, poet, Leonard Cohen, gives us this lyric. And Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water, and he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower. And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him, he said, all men shall be sailors then, until the sea shall free them. For those drowning in misery, Jesus is present. God with us. I grew up in a harbor town. In harbor towns, we know a little bit about lighthouses. A lighthouse has to be working all the time, shining its beams, being present, because you never know when somebody's going to need it. As Christians, we are God's lighthouses. And likewise, we never know when somebody is going to need our presence. So it's best to be present as much as we can. I know that can seem like a little bit of a heavy burden, but don't beat yourself up about it if you're not delivering it every day. Just think about it, and it happens more and more. It is, of course, much easier to be present for the amiable and the familiar can be a little bit like fingernails on the blackboard to be present for the strange and the hostile. But who needs it more? If we're to be truly present, it can't just be when it is pleasant for us. Jesus showed us the way to this kind of presence, how to love not just the unloved, 
but the unlovely and even the unlovable. An old friend, who was also my first yoga teacher, sent me this story. He'd just flown in, in on a red eye to Miami. He was exhausted. So he went to the snack bar and ordered some orange juice. The waitress looked at him and said, Ah, oh, hon, don't you want something to eat? He says, I swear she was channeling my mother. <laughs> he said, all right, I'll have a bagel and some cream cheese. She said, that's better, and went off to get him some sustenance. To this day, he still remembers her very clearly. Is there someone you remember so clearly for the way they were present in your life at a moment of need? Are there people that remember you that way? You might not even know it, but they remember. When Graham went to meet her maker on the eve of her 96th birthday, we buried her in the old Pioneer Cemetery where we used to go every spring to clean off her parents' graves. At the service that grandchildren and great-grandchildren spoke about Graham, and at the end of each there was applause, not so much for the speaker as for Graham and the way she lived her life. She wasn't perfect, but she showed up. And that leads us to the oh-so-possible standard. Because each of us is a child of God. We can lead lives that change the lives of others in ways large and very, very small. Our lives can be the teaching that changes the future for those that we touch through our actions, through our love, through our presence. Let us pray. God, show us the way to be present in the world. Grant us the humility of mind to place others above ourselves. Let us greet each person in our lives with the worth that is inherently theirs. Help us to be your lamps in the darkness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.